Good afternoon. This hearing, uh, titled Southeast Europe Promoting Democracy and Countering Malign Foreign Influence of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Europe and Regional Security Cooperation is called to order. Uh, good afternoon and welcome. The Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Europe and Regional Security is meeting today to examine the threats, the problems, and the progress being made in Southeast Europe. We will hear from both the administration and outside experts on U.S. interests and policy options in the region. I was in Europe about two weeks ago, where I had the opportunity to meet with European leaders, including officials from Romania, Croatia, Montenegro, Bosnia, and others. Their message was consistent. U.S. leadership is needed in Southeast Europe. When the U.S. withdraws, the power vacuum is filled by countries with malign intent. While in Europe, I had the pleasure of visiting Montenegro to meet with their Prime Minister, Defense Minister, and others to discuss their decision to join NATO and the issues facing their country. It is a beautiful country with great potential. Actually, a little off script here. One of my suggestions to their, their government was they, they really need a Ministry of Marketing. Uh, unbelievable potential uh, that needs to be taken advantage of. And yet, just last week, court proceedings began involving uh, began involving an October 2016 attempt to overthrow Montenegro's pro-West government and assassinate the Prime Minister. After an extensive investigation, Montenegro's special prosecutor brought in an indictment against the individuals believed responsible. According to that indictment, a high-level official of the Russian main intelligence directorate instigated the plot, which was to be carried out by Serbian nationalists. Thankfully, the coup was foiled but this should serve as a stark example of the seriousness of the Russian threat in the region. Last week on June 5th, Montenegro, undeterred, deposited its instrument of accession to NATO, officially becoming the 29th member of the alliance. This was an important milestone for both Montenegro and NATO, and it sends a clear message that NATO's doors remain open for those wishing to join and willing to make the required reforms. It is also an opportune moment for the U.S. to recommit itself to the stability and prosperity of Southeast Europe. The United States and our European allies played a crucial role in crafting the post-Yugoslavia map. But U.S. engagement in the region is not what it once was. In recent years, Europe has taken the lead in the region, promoting political and economic reforms through the incentive of EU membership. Unfortunately, successive crises have created fissures in the European project and led some EU members to balk at further expansion. The resulting political vacuum in Southeast Europe has led to some backsliding on institutional reforms and created an opening for destructive foreign influence, namely destabilizing Russia, disinformation and propaganda, and radical Islamists from the Middle East. Ultimately, U.S. policy in Southeast Europe must be shaped by our vital national interests. The wars of the 20th century made clear the importance of a peaceful and prosperous Europe to U.S. security and economic prosperity. Those conflicts are similarly clear about the perils of ignoring political and ethnic tensions in the Balkans. We all want to see a Europe free, whole, and at peace. This hearing aims to refocus U.S. attention on this important region, to examine our long-term aims, the means required to achieve them, and the threats that could frustrate them. I'd like to thank our witnesses for joining us today. I look forward to the testimony. And I'd like to turn it over, over to my distinguished ranking member, Senator Murphy, for his opening remarks. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Johnson. And I want to thank uh, you uh, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for convening 
this hearing to consider current challenges in Southeast Europe because, frankly, this is a region that deserves much more of our attention from both sides of the aisle. Um, I think of it in this way. Um, I think three of the greatest challenges that uh, U.S. foreign policy faces come to a head inside the Balkans. Um, First, uh, the challenge uh, of covert and overt Russian influence that undermines support for Western institutions and further uh, degrades democratic governance. Uh, Second, the persistent scourge of corruption that's holding back economic progress and destabilizing governments throughout the region. And third, the rising radicalization of Muslim youth and a relatively large number out of this region who have traveled to Syria to fight with ISIS. The good news, though, is that every single one of these problems that confronts the region that will be the subject of our hearing today is solvable if we just apply a bit more effort and are willing to devote some new resources to the region. As a recent example, a concerted U.S.-led effort to address the foreign fighter issue has led to every country in the region passing legislation to criminalize the participation of their citizens in foreign wars. But in the absence of clear U.S. and EU policies, internal vulnerabilities are being exposed, and external actors from outside the region, namely Russia, are exerting influence to destabilize the region. Russia's presence is increasingly felt, and every single leader from the region that comes to talk to us, this is what they want to talk about. They want to talk about Russia's increased focus on the region. Um, This is happening at a time that the United States, quite frankly, is simply not showing up in the way that we once were. Uh, There is great concern in the region about the massive withdrawal of the United States from the Balkans and from the Western Balkans, not having an assistant uh, secretary for the region makes uh, our efforts in the region very difficult. We'll hear from uh, Hoi Yi in our second panel. He does great work, but he cannot do it alone. Um, Democratic progress has stalled in many of these countries, and citizens are still grappling with corruption, high unemployment, and a lack of opportunity. There is now a real fear that renewed nationalism and ethnic tension could throw back parts of this region into crisis. And this isn't something that we should take for granted, right? We have all celebrated the relative uh, degree of stability that has come to that region since the time in which this Congress was obsessed with conflict there. But there is a real danger of renewed physical violence in the region between the coup attempt in Montenegro, organized violence in the Macedonian parliament, increased radicalization, as I mentioned, of ethnic Albanian youth, and Dodik's national agenda in Republika Srpska. The region is a potential tinderbox that could ignite over any number of simmering conflicts. Understanding the domestic and international drivers of these conflicts, it's crucial to determine how they can be addressed. So the United States should step up our engagement in the region, and we should Uh, have a discussion today to understand how we can better assist our many partners, our increasing allies, now with the accession of Montenegro to NATO, with the challenges that they face. And I look forward to our first and second panel today discussing all of these issues with you. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Our first witness is Mr. Damon Wilson. Mr. Wilson is Executive Vice President of the Atlantic Council. Oh, I'm not reading my script. Before I introduce our witnesses, I'd like to note that our panel order is flipped due to a scheduling conflict. This is not a new precedent. You can expect administration panels to be first in future hearings. We are grateful for the administration and Deputy Assistant Secretary Yee's flexibility in being able to testify later this afternoon. 
Now, I'll introduce Mr. Damon Wilson. Mr. Wilson is Executive Vice President of the Atlantic Council. He has served as both Senior Director for European Affairs and Senior Director for Central, Eastern, and Northern European Affairs on the National Security Council, and was Deputy Director of the Private Office of the NATO Secretary, assisting Lord, Lord George Robertson. Mr. Wilson. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Senator Murphy. Thank you for this opportunity. And I want to start by uh, thanking you in particular for your leadership on Southeast Europe, uh, and in particular the Senate's role in acting decisively to ratify the protocols of accession, welcoming Montenegro as our newest ally. That's some good news. The Western Balkans were supposed to be a problem solved, or at least a problem that the Americans could hand off to the Europeans, so the saying went. But sadly, as you've laid out, that's not the case. Witness October 16th last year in Podgorica. On that election day, Montenegro's authorities disrupted a plan by Russian-backed Serbian nationalists to enter parliament dressed as security officers and to open fire on opposition supporters. The plan was to assassinate the prime minister and declare the election invalid or orchestrate the Russian-financed opposition taking power. As you mentioned, Montenegro's independent special prosecutor has now identified two Russian military intelligence officers as masterminds. These two individuals fled Serbia 10 days after the failed coup attempt to return to Moscow just as Nikolai Petrushev, former head of the Russian Federal Security Service and current head of Russia's Security Council, arrived in Belgrade. Contrast that spy-like novel story with October 2001 in Moscow when a, when a then-nervous President Tchaikovsky of Macedonia visited Russia to inform President Putin that his nation would pursue NATO membership in earnest, and Putin brushed it off, replying, Macedonia is not Ukraine. Putin's ambivalence about a Balkan nation pursuing NATO membership more than 15 years ago and the Kremlin's willingness to back a coup attempt last October underscores how much the geopolitical situation has changed. As Washington has turned its attention elsewhere, the EU strategy has given way to bureaucratic process, increasingly detached from political vision. The consensus in the region about its future has frayed. Short-term political costs of reforms at home seem to outweigh the ambiguity of long-term benefits, and we see that stagnation actually is giving way potentially to backsliding. It's this lack of a North Star that's opened a tempting new front for the Kremlin's efforts to rewrite the rules of the post-Cold War era. So my central message is that a little bit of effort in this region pays great dividends. Alternatively, American ambivalence today may engender a crisis tomorrow, which in turn would demand a far greater degree of American engagement than would have been required to avoid a crisis in the first place. So of course, there's no bright future in the region without EU leadership. However, the United States retains a special authority given its central role in ending the fighting and stabilizing the region. Moscow's objectives are simply to disrupt the region's integration into NATO-EU. We've seen it finance a campaign to turn public opinion against NATO and Montenegro, to destabilize Bosnia's central government, to intervene cynically in Macedonia's contested elections, nudging that country to the brink of conflict, and to operating intelligence services in Serbia without a hinder, bolstered by the presence of a humanitarian base. Moscow seized a low-cost opportunity because of a strategic vacuum. For the United States, we've learned that regional conflict in the area can lead to great power conflict, that left unaddressed radicalization of Muslim populations can fuel a foreign fighter population flow, that unmitigated population flows through the region into EU states can pose a challenge to our security 
for countries that have visa waiver program on their borders. And the instability in Southeast Europe risks depriving the United States of a strategic partner in the EU. So therefore, it is a time for us to engage with a bit more of coherent strategy. First, by establishing a sense of clarity in our common goal that results of reform at home mean that all Balkan states can be a part of a secure, prosperous transatlantic community. Clarity of vision. Second, to ensure that we make Montenegro's membership a success, the short term. And third, that we should think about committing an enduring U.S. security presence in the region, a permanent military presence as part of a NATO force in Kosovo could serve as a deterrent force and guarantor in the region. And fourth, we should consider a historic rapprochement with Serbia as part of this process. Um, we also have an opportunity to foster reconciliation and reform in Macedonia, um, lead efforts to resolve the name dispute and pave its way, its entry into NATO. But I think one of the most important things is that we take a bet on the people of the region. Our objective is not simply stability. We should afford, avoid reinforcing cozy political patronage networks, often run by national forces. Working with our EU partners, we should pursue a concerted effort to provide opportunities for youth and entrepreneurs to thrive and use our leverage to create public-private partnerships for our opportunities within these countries. So our priority is to put an end to drift. A small show of commitment now will shore up an order painstakingly put together in response to the bloodletting of the 90s. These measures will help grow an independent constituency for a democratic, prosperous future across the region. Locals need to be reassured that new ethnic hostilities are not around the corner and that borders are not about to be redrawn under their feet. And in the same vein, Russia must be made to understand that there's no easy path for it to sow chaos in the region. I believe now with your leadership, the U.S. Senate has a unique opportunity to help drive a renewed American strategy towards the region, and we welcome the opportunity to support those efforts. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. Our next witness is Dr. Maida Ruge, and I know I'm supposed to roll that R, but I'm just not capable of doing so. But Dr. Ruge is a fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Previously, she was a research fellow at the Gulf Research Center and worked as an advisor for the delegation of the European Commission and the OSCE mission to Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, Dr. Roge. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and distinguished ranking member Murphy. It's a real honor to be here. I was asked to talk about the radicalization among Muslims in the Balkans. I have covered the issue in more detail in my written testimony, and what I would like to do now is zoom out a bit and look at the context in which this radicalization is happening. So what is the big picture? We see that radicalization is currently confined to a tiny minority of Muslims in the Balkans, the vast majority of whom are moderate and have a European outlook. In Bosnia, overwhelming majority of Muslims oppose ISIS and support United States. In Kosovo, in certain places, you will see more US and NATO flags than Kosovo ones. And in Montenegro, it's thanks to the votes of the 20% of the Muslim population that we have a pro-NATO government in place. We also see that a small fraction of Muslims have radicalized by adopting a very rigid interpretation of Islam 
and non-pluralistic views that are inconsistent with local traditions. This is a large societal problem, though majority of those radicalized are non-violent, and it requires more focus than it has been given. Finally, we see a violent fraction of those already radicalized departing to Syria and Iraq and plotting attacks at home. The foreign fighter threat has received lots of attention um, and is a serious issue. It has been less worrying than the Franco-Belgian um, phenomena. The average Bosnian Muslim is five times less likely to volunteer as a foreign fighter than an average Belgian Muslim. The threat should not be downplayed as even a single person can implement a devastating attack. Um, however, we need to acknowledge the majority of moderate Muslims in the region who are U.S.'s key allies in detecting threats and preventing further radicalization. Now, I would like to single out few structural issues which foster radicalization in the Balkans and which needs to, need to be urgently addressed in order to stop the phenomena from spreading further. The first one Autocratic rulers who siphon off public funds, cripple the economy, and leave populations disillusioned and susceptible to radicalization. We should remember that the radical groups promoting such ideology do not only fill spiritual gaps, but they also fill gaps in health, social services, and education. Secondly, the use of nationalism and fear-mongering by these same rulers to divert from their shortcomings in governance, which deepens divisions in society. If you look at ISIS propaganda videos that are targeting Balkans, the victimhood of Muslims during the ethnic cleansing campaigns in the 90s is at the center of their message. Now, any continuation of denial of war crimes and celebration of war criminals reinforces this perception of victimhood and directly helps jihadi recruitment drive. And third, the very institutions that were built up with US and EU assistance um, to protect the society from criminal threats and terrorism are being actively undermined by these same autocratic leaders who see them as threats to their own power. Just to give you an example, um, for the past 10 years, Bosnian Serb leader Milorad Dodik has been undermining all national law enforcement agencies and rule of agencies at the national level, um, set up by the U.S. partly to fight terrorism. For instance, um, beginning of last year, he has banned SIPA, which is an FBI equivalent um, in Bosnia, from accessing RS territory. And this is like a governor of Georgia banning FBI from his state. So it is only due to international pressure that he backed off from um, such obstruction of, of justice and rule of law. Um, much of this dynamic has developed since the U.S. has disengaged from the region. Left unchecked, the prospect of state failure, at least in one of the Balkan states, cannot be ruled out. And this would massively fuel radicalization among Muslim populations. So to reinforce what my colleague has said, this is certainly not the time for the US to disengage further. 
and the type of engagement that is mostly needed is political and requires only modest investment of time and attention. In conclusion, to strengthen the resilience against further radicalization in the Balkans, the U.S. should focus on two things. One is help contain the further spread of radical ideas, and here we need to identify all sorts of extremism and extremist ideologies um, as a key driver for radicalization and mobilization to violence. While Islamist ideologies act as pull factors, extremism by non-Muslims definitely act as push. Second, continue to counter politically motivated challenges to democratic institutions in the Balkans. Macedonia was just pulled back from the brink of conflict, largely due to U.S. help to form a new democratic government. And this shows that even limited U.S. pressure can yield dividends. Thank you, Dr. Rugi. Uh, our final witness is Ms. Ivana Bairovic. Ms. Bairovic is a senior program officer at the National Endowment for Democracy, overseeing the Democracy Assistance Program in Southeast Europe. Prior to joining NED, Ms. Bairovic trained U.S. soldiers deploying to the Balkans and supported the NATO peacekeeping mission to Bosnia. Uh, Ms. Bairovic. Thank you, Chairman <clears throat> Johnson, Ranking Member Murphy for this opportunity to address you today and discuss the challenges facing Southeast Europe um, and how to best respond to them. And on behalf of the National Endowment for Democracy, I would like to thank you for your ongoing support and commitment to the region. Um, I would like to maybe outline some of the democratic declines that you've already um, uh, sketched out, uh, as uh, did my distinguished colleagues here, and that have been characterized by weak and compromised institutions, autocratic strongmen, growing media capture, lingering ethnic grievances, and worsening regional relations. All of these conditions, unfortunately, open a lot of space for external actors to misuse them and exert their influence. Russia, in particular, is exploiting these weaknesses in an effort to gain greater geopolitical influence. And even though other authoritarian actors are standing in the wings, I would single out Russia as the, sing as the most concerning external threat. Um, having it expanded its influence to a greater degree um, here in Southeast Europe, the region that we're discussing today, and more than anywhere else in Europe, save for Ukraine. Uh, Mr. Wilson has already outlined uh, some examples of how far this uh, uh, reach and, and how extensive this reach is, but I would just like to point out this June 4th article in The Guardian, uh, which was penned by several net grantees and alleges that Russia has carried out a decade-long campaign to, quote, spread propaganda and stroke discord in the region with the goal to create a strip of militarily neutral countries that would include Bosnia and Herzegovina, Macedonia, Montenegro, and Serbia. Montenegro's successful bid last week presents a major blow to this plan, and just how big of a blow I think is best illustrated by the foreign, Russian's foreign ministry tweet in response to the announcement that Montenegro has become a NATO state, uh, NATO member state, which says that the Montenegro's anti-Russian hysteria and hostile policy uh, in response to it, Russia, quote, reserves the right to take reciprocal measures. I draw your attention to this tweet because such brazen language emboldens illiberal elements and extremist radicals in the region to attack those advancing and defending democratic principles, including civil society groups and media supported by the endowment. I'll give you one example. In January this year, the Youth Initiative for Human Rights, one of the leading pro-democracy groups in the region and a long-time NED grantee, was at at attacked by a gang of six men who labeled the group's activists traitors and foreign mercenaries. 
It will turn out later that at least two of these assailants are identified as being affiliated with a pro-Russian nationalist group and had fought in eastern Ukraine. Other activists, human rights defenders and journalists have also come under heavy attack for their work in promoting democracy and fundamental freedoms in their countries, including the grantees I mentioned have contributed to the Guardian article. Yet it is precisely this type of groundbreaking investigative work that they are doing that strengthens democracy in the region and presents the best defense against disinformation and malign foreign influence. Mr. Chairman, as both of my colleagues have mentioned, any extended political crisis, economic downturn, or foreign meddling could easily push the region towards instability and even renewed conflict. The best case scenario we can hope for at this time without greater Western attention is the preservation of an illiberal status quo with increasingly autocratic leaders who continue to weaken democratic institutions, restrict media freedoms, and worsen ethnic tensions, while offering the international community short-term deliverables in the name of maintaining stability. For far too long, stability has been the principal goal of Western policy in the post-conflict Balkans, and lowering the bar on democratic progress has weakened the transformational power of the EU, and we need to recognize that. Together with EU disengagement, this has left a vacuum that other external players are eager to exploit. Therefore, Western governments need to recognize the urgency of the situation and the potential costs of the crisis the region might be facing. They should press for real democratic progress, which is the key to regional security and long-term stability. In my written testimony, I have provided a more extensive list of recommendations here. I would like to focus on just three, those that are particularly focused on strengthening democracy through the support of civil society, the type of groups that NED is working with. One, challenge undemocratic practices and trends, especially in direct communications with the region's leaders. Those who are fighting for democracy can and do suffer when the West is inconsistent and doesn't provide political support for the work that they do. They deserve our solidarity and the unwavering support of American people, for they don't defend their, only their own fundamental values, but also ours. Two, adopt a more pluralistic approach to promoting reform by reaching out to a diversified group of political, civic, and media actors. Self-proclaimed ethnic leaders and factors of stability should not be allowed to monopolize and manipulate important reform processes. We should recognize those pro-democratic opposition leaders, civil society activists, and independent journalists for the contributions they are making. And here I would like to make a personal appeal that when you visit the region, you really make sure, if it's possible, to, to uh, find some time to meet with some of the brave individuals who are doing this excellent work. And third, continue to provide democracy support to civil society organizations, independent media, and moderate political parties. And this does not necessarily require increased assistance, but what it does ask for is a rededication to the values that will help to achieve meaningful democratic process. Mr. Chairman, let me conclude, and Ranking Member Murphy, let me conclude by uh, just noting that as a Bosnia native and a person who was personally affected by the war in the 1990s, I have a special appreciation for the bipartisan support in Congress which helped to end the conflicts in the 1990s. Reinvigorating this support for the region's full democratic progress would leave absolutely no room for interpretation regarding American values, or misinterpretation rather, and therefore no space for dangerous alternatives that are advocated from the East. Thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Bayrovic. L let me start with you being a Bosnian native, and I'll ask all three uh, witnesses the same question. Kind of laid out the current state of play, the current reality. 
I'd like to kind of go back, and maybe you can go back further if you'd like to, but really from the signing of the Dayton Accords, can you lay out the history, what happened? I mean, what, where was the engagement? When did the, in, the engagement by both America and Europe start waning? Uh, what brought us to this, the current situation? Ms. Bairovich. I can begin. Um, I think there's no doubt that in the first 10 years following the signing of the Dayton Peace Accords, we've seen progress. Um, Dayton Peace Accords inherently in its structure uh, provide some constraints for full democratic progress in countries like Bosnia and Herzegovina because they really encourage ethnopolitics and not the real pluralism and accountability of the kind that we would like to see in consolidated democracies. Uh, but that being said, things were looking fairly good until probably about, I would say, uh, mid-2000s. And uh, where we definitely notice a downward spiral is from 2008. Um, and this is where we also notice significant uh, U.S. Um, disengagement. I think partly uh, somebody had uh, previously uh, alluded to, I think it was Ranking Member Murphy, this was due to the, the fact and the recognition that things were fairly stable and that could be turned over to the European Union because Balkans has often been seen as the Balkan problem, uh, as the European problem, and uh, by the virtue of being in the EU's backyard, uh, it was fairly safe to assume that the anchoring of the region would provide a, a cure in itself, so to say. And that has proven not to be the case. Um, I hate to sound as a EU skeptic, but in, in part, I personally believe that this was um, due to the um, Europeans mis EU's misguided approach in using conditionality that has worked in Central Europe but has been gambled away for the sake of stability that I mentioned in countries like Bosnia. Because I think um, being afraid of any instability and renewed conflict in the Balkans has led primarily EU, but to some extent the U.S. as well, to favor stability over uh, real democratic progress uh, over, over the last decade, and this is when we really see things uh, backsliding. Dr. Ruge, would you like to add to that? I will answer this question both as a native and someone who wrote a PhD thesis on this question. Um, <clears throat> engagement of the U.S. Um, was there from the start. U.S. is member of the Peace Implementation Council. Um, I would say the strongest influence that the U.S. together with the U.S. has exerted in Bosnia was between 2002 and 2006. Um, which is when we see a period of best coordination and cooperation between various actors, US, EU, and the high representative who was back then, Lord Ashdown. Um, this is the time when in Bosnia, the largest numbers of EU reforms have been adopted by politicians in parliament that normally had obstructed even smaller measures. This is the time when Republika Srpska had actually come out with report on Srebrenica, when Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks had supported reforms at the national level, building up a huge number of institutions in rule of law and law enforcement. From 2006 on, a new high representative has arrived, and a new policy was announced very loudly, and that was a policy that 
Bosnians would take over and the EU agenda would take care of the reforms. Um, and from then on, there was much less direct confrontation of obstruction. Um, the US has outsourced Balkans to the Europeans. And due to the lack of political presence and political reaction or reacting to obstruction, um, for the past 10 years, the authoritarian politicians have been testing their limits and obstructing a step further each time. Mr. Wilson. Just to add to that, my career began as a student working with uh, refugee projects in the region and seeing the direct connection between the relationship between U.S. leadership or engagement and what happens on the ground. And I think we've had three markers in the Balkans uh, where each time we've wanted to hand over the baton and we failed. Um, first, post-89, I think you remember Secretary Baker's famous, we don't have a dog in this fight. Post-89, the sense that now where we were, that this is Europe's moment, could be handed over to Europe, and we saw what led to the succession wars in Yugoslavia. Um, we were very reluctant to get involved. We got involved through the alliance, Bosnia, later Kosovo. I think the second era of wanting to hand back over a little bit was around about 2005 and about, as my colleagues mentioned. And this was really driven by um, the pressures U.S. military was facing in coalition operations, uh, Iraq, um, uh, Afghanistan, increasingly Iraq, uh, and where it was clear that Secretary Rumsfeld set the debate on the terms each time NATO ministers met, what is the next step of drawdown in our forces and on the other side of the equation, what is the next step in the drawdown in our assistance? That was the paradigm. How do we draw down? Understandable reasons, things at play, but there were consequences to that as the region saw the EU increasingly in a security role being handed the ball. And then in 2008, where we did succeed at the Bucharest summit to welcome Albania and Croatia, not Macedonia, into the alliance, but it was a marker because we failed, the alliance failed in its strategy on what to do with Europe's east. And this is, again, a beginning of an opening where sort of the overall strategy of how we complete a Europe whole and free, essentially the U.S. stepped back in Bucharest, handed the baton to the EU, and we've seen the Russians use and leverage that moment. The Georgia War followed, but obviously I think this is connected, an opening, a strategic vacuum uh, that it could exploit. So we've had three moments, three markers, where I think the United States has explicitly sort of handed off. And I think it drives home the message that clearly the EU is a big player in the Balkans. It doesn't work without EU resources, political capital, vision. But the United States has a special role here, and it's the partnership of U.S. leadership in terms of vision with the EU, a vision, a common vision which been, has been eroded as being credible, a strategy that backs it up, um, and the, the tools the United States can bring on a security uh, side to match the EU. So let's talk about specifically those tools, that cooperation, that coordination. Uh, not necessarily a whole lot of relative investment, but it's really diplomatic engagement, right? It's, it's, it's being kind of the, the, the big dog on the block and, and doing everything we can to pressure anti-corruption effort, you know, for anti-corruption efforts. I mean, just describe those. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but but talk about what we actually did, um, because if that's all this, if, if you know, obviously we're $20 trillion in debt, money's an issue. Uh, but if it's diplomatic efforts, uh, that's far more feasible. I guess we'll start the same, same order, and then I'll turn it over to Senator Murphy. 
So, sounds good. I would definitely agree with you that the, that the diplomatic engagement is just as important as the resources. I, I think one definitely cannot go without the other. Um, and um, I, I could, if I started giving you examples of uh, when U.S. engagement made a difference, uh, we could be here almost all day. I mean, certainly starting from the 1995 intervention and 1999 intervention. Uh, most recently, I, I really would like to actually uh, commend uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Hoyti's uh, rein, how would I say, reinvigoration of engagement in the region and his frequent visits there. And uh, I think somebody had mentioned earlier that his visit in Macedonia really almost immediately resulted in uh, country's president softening his stance on the formation of the new government, and this could be paving the way of uh, resolving this very prolonged crisis in, in Macedonia. And I think seeing more of such engagement from the U.S. side is going to be absolutely necessary. Um, there are other examples, more recent examples, if you allow me to focus on those. Um, for example, the U.S. sanctions on the Bosnian um, Serb nationalist leader, Milorad Dodik, that uh, Dr. Ruge had already mentioned, uh, for obstructing the implementation of the 1995 Dayton Peace Accords, had an immediate effect on tempering down his secessionist rhetoric. And uh, I think that similar mechanisms uh, should be encouraged uh, on the behalf of the United States to be used by our European colleagues because they were not reciprocated on the European side and they should have been. I think that they would have had uh, much greater effect if, if there, were, there was more coordination and, and, and agreement um, with uh, uh, our European colleagues on using such instruments uh, and or other targeted measures that don't have to be personal sanctions but could uh, ensure that those who uh, endanger stability and breach fundamental rights and norms should not and cannot benefit from either the U.S. or the EU assistance. Those would be just some of the examples of U.S. leadership that I could see. Thank you. Dr. Ruge. Thank you, Senator. Um, when we talk about tools... Um, I guess we have to think about tools for what, and there's two, two issues here. Um, one issue is countering, um, countering obstruction and countering political behavior, which undermines everything that the U.S. and the EU have helped achieve um, in the Balkans. Um, and these tools are mostly political. They are all different sorts of sticks and carrots, um, and threat of sanction, threat of sanctions in behind the closed doors has, in my um, experience, proven to be more effective than sometimes sanctions themselves. Um, not to see that they shouldn't be. What are the best sanctions to threaten? Just you know, travel to leaders. I mean, what, what actually? Personal, personal. Per okay. Personal wealth personal and informal opportunity structures, and this is something that has been done from 2002 to 2006 extensively. Again, really targeting the so leaders, not targeting, the population, but... Tar not the population. Right. Targeting the leaders, targeting their informal networks, which are very often linked to war criminals and organized crime, targeting their informal financial and enterprise networks. Um, so targeting their interests. So this is in terms of political tools. Um, there's other, obviously there's carrots and sticks and the US should rely more heavily on the international financial institutions. IMF has a huge role in the Balkans, so does World Bank, um, EU as well. And so one of the things that we've seen in this time period was also better coordination of conditionalities. 
better coordination of what these conditionalities are used to back up. And I've provided some of the recommendations in my written testimony on that. Um, then the tools for a different sort of objective, which is long-term, uh, is obviously rule of law. How do you kind of transition from just sanctioning corrupt leaders to actually building up um, states that are based on respect of rule of law? And as a friend of mine from U.S. Institute of Peace uh, reminded me recently by quoting Gordon Brown, the problem with rule of law is the first 400 years. Um, however, what is good news, I think, is that we are dealing with countries with relatively small populations. Some of the countries have populations that are smaller than Walmart employees. And we're dealing with countries that have tradition and experience and legal systems that existed before and that do not require as much, I would say, effort um, as in certain places around the world. Um, and there I think both, again, EU programs have been very valuable. USAID has done a lot uh, on building up the rule of law, and I think it is, it is, um, it is good to rely on these agencies. Okay. Uh, Mr. Wilson. Senator, if I may, I think the premise of your question is right, that this isn't really just about more money, resources, uh, certainly from our side. And I'd say four quick things. One is that we've lost the North Star. What's the clarity of our goal? I mean, if you're sitting in the region, in the Balkans, you look and you see uncertainty about the future of the European Union itself, and you see the United States having a debate about its own commitment to NATO. So I think we begin with the clarity of our goal that as reforms succeed in this region, that we will welcome these countries as part of the transatlantic community, period, and to help reestablish that sense of North Star. Second, the security presence, which is where the U.S. comes into play, and it's almost as much perception as reality. If we simply stated, and Secretary Mattis stated, that our presence at Camp Bonstill was not just a part of K4 and part of the, the pre, uh, uh, perspective on how we maintain peace in Kosovo, but just like our deployment of enhanced forward deployment in Europe's east, that our presence there was actually part of an enduring presence to project stability, provide guarantee for the region, I think that immediately would send a signal, a calming signal uh, in the region. Third, it's balancing this no free pass for the current leaders that were not just invested in their stability with the reality of still competing for these countries and their leaders. Um, in many respects, a leader like President Vucic of Serbia, he knows where his bread is buttered. 5% um, of their exports go to Russia, 66% of the EU. That's an inevitable future. And yet it's Putin that lavishes him with praise and banquets, and we send in our ambassador to tell him what he's doing wrong. I think there is an ability to actually, for some of these leaders, um, some of them who have a populist bent, um, to compete with their people and with them. And the final point is the private sector. One of the most powerful things has been the in, uh, that I've watched uh, at a micro level has been the entry of players like Uber into the market in the Balkans, a dramatically disruptive private sector force that provides jobs outside of patronage networks and provides opportunities. While Uber might be involved in corporate leadership controversy here, the issue of how you stimulate an entrepreneurship for folks to actually make their own futures rather than depend on patronage and networks is something that we could actually lend a hand in. Well, just to underscore that point, I was in Montenegro, uh, I guess a survey provided by one of the private sector guys I was talking to said that 50% of Montenegrin youth want to be employed by the government, which is not exactly a real entrepreneurial spirit. Senator Murphy. 
Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Th those are fantastic questions to set the stage here. And let me key off of the direction that uh, Mr. Wilson took this and maybe run the question back down the panel. Um, I, so I, I completely buy into the idea that a big piece of the storyline here is a withdrawal of American leadership. Um, I think you've all plotted that case very clearly um, and talked a little bit about the tools. But um, it, it's insufficient as a complete explanation. And I think Mr. Wilson started to give us the other pieces of this. So if you're looking at that key time period of 2002, as Ms. Ruge put it, to 2007 or 2005, whenever it is, there are a couple other things that are happening at that point, too. The, the world economy in about 2007, 2008 starts to fall apart, and people start questioning the future of Europe and its ability to deal with its problems in the period after Dayton. It's kind of the, um, you know, it's that, 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 that's sort of the golden moment in many ways for Europe. Everybody sees this as the path. They're watching the Polish uh, uh, economic renaissance explode. Everybody wants in on a piece of, of that. Um, at that time period that you're talking about, people's faith in Europe starts to wane. Um, faith in it starts to pull apart, and Russia is back on the scene. All of a sudden, there's another suitor, right? Again, in the years after Dayton, as you're making lots of progress, Russia is weak. Russia is not interested in being involved in the way they are today and other people's affairs. Today, uh, they are. Um, and so just key, and I think Mr. Wilson is starting to talk about this, but just I'd love to have the two of you talk about those other two components, right, which is um, that ultimately, if Europe isn't confident about their future direction. Can U.S. leadership or U.S. reengagement make up for that fact? I mean, I can argue that the primary driver of all of that reform was a belief that they were going to be a big future part of Europe. If they don't believe that, uh, then it's not clear that the U.S. can make up for it. And two, um, inside the president's budget is massive cuts in the programs that we use to counter Russian propaganda, in the money that we use to counter Russian energy um, influence. Uh, if we're not providing real answers for Balkan nations uh, with respect to Russian interference, are we going to get anywhere? Those two questions to both of you, and then maybe Mr. Wilson can finish it up. Um. Okay, let me first start just by noting that in Bosnia, the number that um, Chairman Johnson mentioned in Montenegro was 50%. In Bosnia, it's 70% of youth who consider government employment the only employment. Um, this question, um, Senator Murphy, on, on Plan B is something that we at NED ask ourselves quite a bit. We have also framed a lot of the assistance that we've been providing to the region for the past 20 years um, in this uh, um, EU terms, because uh, it's, it's a very useful tool. Um, it is the one that touches both the leaders and the citizens themselves. And for a number of reasons, some of which have been outlined, this, uh, the pool effect of the EU is definitely waning. Uh, part of it was this, as I was mentioning, gambled conditionality. Um, part of it is the ailments of the EU itself, both economic and political. Um, the other one, the third one, which I think is a very important one, is uh, these a series of important signals that uh, place in doubt the EU's readiness to accept these countries as full members. And, um, uh, and then finally, the, the fourth question, and the one that it's an elephant in the room, is uh, the future of the EU itself, and does it exist X number of years from now? 
And so it's, it is becoming increasingly more difficult to, in, to anchor uh, democratic assistance and democratic progress uh, processes from this region, even though, yes, this is the most logical and natural thing to do, because as I was mentioning earlier, uh, Southeast European region is, is right there in the EU's backyard. Uh, one of the resolu I mean, if I had the answer to this big question, you know, I, I, I'd uh, gladly offer it, but I think that the, it, for lack of a better one, uh, I would turn to NATO, and, um, and, and I, I think a very important signal that the Montenegrin membership has sent. Um, our grantee from Belgrade, Center for Euro-Atlantic Studies, someone that I also know Atlantic Council very closely works with, uh, argues in their upcoming report that because of all of these issues with the EU that I just mentioned, uh, NATO can, and, and I'm quoting this, NATO can and should be the leading actor of a sustained and comprehensive process of the region's stabilization and democratization. There are tools there. there are there's a potential there, not to replace the EU accession process for sure, but certainly to supplement it and, you know, potentially... Uh, um, uh, send, and it will send an important signal, it, and not just to external actors, for example, NATO, as NATO membership has done, that the region is safely anchored in the West um, for as long as the EU accession process itself has stalled, but it also provides incentives to citizens uh, because uh, um, it demonstrates to them what some of these integration processes, uh, what kind of benefits they, they come with, and in this case, it is certainly a security prospect uh, when it comes to Montenegro. Um, on the second part, on the Russian propaganda, I think that the, uh, the tackling of the malign foreign influence in this particular case of Russia and strengthening of democracy have to go hand in hand. Because I think as all of three of us have outlined, it is really these democratic weaknesses and backsliding that have opened up the space for malign foreign influence. Um, because, you know, uh, strong rule of law, complete accountability and transparency, all of these are tools that are going to provide the, the uh, groundwork um, uh, for institutions. I mean, the most important thing here is to strengthen the institutions that would provide uh, adequate responses. I'm uh, very well aware of uh, the assistance that is, that is now in the works to particularly target this uh, Russian disinformation, and I, I understand you were crucial in passing this legislation, and I want to thank you for that. And Ned, uh, we have used uh, some assistance that was provided to us by Congress last year uh, to strategically tackle this problem of what we call the defending the integrity of information space. And, um, you know, I, I could probably go at length in what types of programs these include. Uh, I have to say that the region, the Southeast Europe region, in terms of responses to these malign foreign influences and disinformation, are lagging behind a little bit uh, in comparison to their counterparts in Central Europe and the Baltic states. But there's a lot to be learned, and I think that... Uh, in, in the months to come, we'll see more work being done on this in our region. Great. Do you have any thoughts on this? I have to say this is the question I ask myself a lot as well. Um, I can just add to the number of issues that you have just named uh, by adding Brexit and what is one further complicated factor for the EU policy in the Balkans. Um, the time period that I was talking about was also um, a time period when one discussed EU as a non-actor, not able to act unified on foreign policy. And it was always a couple of driving EU states, UK having played a particular role in that time period together 
with the backing of the US and NATO. Um, I think what we can say is that given these additional challenges at international level, um, it is even more important to look at comparative advantages that Europe and US have. If we're talking about US slashing a budget of these sorts of assistances, EU is not. EU is continuing to support the institutions in the rule of law sector. And perhaps that should be outsourced to the EU. But the US political engagement has always been the most important and determining factor, even during the time period I was talking about. And that, again, regardless of what we have described, or maybe because of all of these factors, is becoming even more important now. Uh, Mr. Wilson, let me ask you to pick up on two of these points as part of uh, developing this answer. Um, you, part of the solution here can be the United States providing real support for the continuity of the European experiment. Um, we had spent a lot of time on this subcommittee over the last four years talking about a US-EU trade agreement that would have increased the attraction uh, of remaining part of the EU and increased the attraction of joining it. So there are things that the United States can do. You mentioned you know, making clear our commitment to NATO is maybe one of the easiest things, but there are other pieces uh, of US foreign policy that could add to the attraction and the cohesiveness of the EU. And then on an ancillary point, I know you said it's not all about funding, but you know, here's the numbers in the president's budget. He, he, he targets this region for specific pain, right? And it's, you can only read it as intentional. So here's the, fun, the, the governance funding cuts. Albania gets an 89% cut. Bosnia, in crisis as we speak, 40% cut. Bulgaria, 75% cut. Croatia, 60% cut. Kosovo, 48. Macedonia, 40. Montenegro, 34. Serbia, 31. I know it's not all about funding, but if you're an ambassador and assistant secretary walking around the region in 2018 trying to get people to listen to you, and your government just cut 60% of the money that you have to fund these efforts, uh, you know, a little bit hard to, you know, you know, pull water out of a stone. So uh, talk about those two pieces. Thank you very much, Senator Murphy. Um, a couple of points on this. Uh, absolutely, it is an expression of further disengagement if we were to go through with budget cuts of that scale. Um, that would, do, I think, directly harm our interests of what we're trying to achieve in this region. Uh, and I, I think if they were to stand in that form, that would cause problems for U.S. influence in the region in support of our own interests. We're not here to make the case that there needs to be a massive new political commitment, a massive new set of security, political, diplomatic, and financial commitments. Our case is that with a little bit of effort here, we can go a long way in protecting our interests. We just can't leave it simply to excellent ambassadors and DASAs. We need to give them a little bit of backup. And so there is a unique opportunity to use what we have to make an impact, I'd say, in the Western Balkans. On the pieces you said, the big picture is if the EU is no longer attractive or no longer committed to the idea of its future expansion. It becomes, uh, it's no longer the driver for the transformation you need in the region. Uh, 
And I think it's important for us to go back again to our role. It was always, as we've discussed, U.S. strategy. I mean, we've just celebrated 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan. The brilliance of the Marshall Plan wasn't the money, although that was relevant. The brilliance of the Marshall Plan was an American strategy that incentivized, in order to get American taxpayers' money, these countries had to work together, cooperate economically, because they, we wanted them to not fight each other again so that we wouldn't have to come back. Their security meant we wouldn't come back our security. Their prosperity meant they were buying American goods, our prosperity. This is at stake right now. Is the United States going to be a driver of European integration? We should have a concerted effort between Washington and Berlin that is sending a clear message to the Western Balkans, not an ambivalent one, and that's lacking right now. I think that is one of the formidable challenges that we have to get right on the messaging of U.S. support for an integration process that is in our interest to see the Western Balkans be part of that part of that narrative. The last thing I'd say is that um, you mentioned the, the TTIP issue. I think this is actually, um, I'm reassured that TTIP has not been formally uh, have a stake driven through the heart. We certainly need to get through German elections. But I would make the case that as we think about a, a deal focused on American jobs, growth, prosperity, given the extent of trade investment supply chain, that doing one with the European Union, which is a bilateral deal after all, is profoundly in our interest. But in this region, if we would negotiate it in such a way that we say we are negotiating some kind of new name trade deal, uh, regulatory deal with Europe, premised on the fact that those countries in Europe with which the EU has these uh, deep and comprehensive free trade agreements, that we're negotiating it such that they would be part of it. And so with the stroke of that negotiating tactic, we're making our negotiations with Europe about including both the Western Balkans and countries like Ukraine, Georgia, in our trade strategy. Are you done, Senator Mitt? Okay. Um, let me just kind of close out this panel, make a couple comments. Uh, first of all, we, we do have co-equal branches, and we, we are supposed to have the power of the purse. And this is one fiscal conservative. The reason I'm holding this hearing is to point out this unique moment in time. This is no time to abandon southeastern Europe. Uh, let's not be penny-wise and pound-foolish. So, I mean, I, th I think that's kind of the whole purpose. But also, m my guess is there may be citizens of these nations watching this hearing, and, and I want to give them that assurance as well. The reason I went to the Brussels Forum, the reason I went to Globesec, the reason I went to Montenegro was to underscore the, the support, and I, I would say it's bipartisan support. I mean, look, look what we did in Ukraine. Uh, the fact that we had bipartisan delegations going to Ukraine and provide the kind of support we did unanimously for Ukraine. Uh, we do understand in Congress here how important our relationship with Europe is. You know, from my standpoint, I'm, I'm all for free and fair trade. And, and we've worked together in terms of, you know, certainly promoting TTIP as well. So uh, I want to thank the witnesses for your, your testimony, for your support of the region. And, you know, I certainly want to assure the region that they do have a great deal of support in Congress for not only the funding, but I think the leadership and the, and the re-engagement uh, to do everything we can to provide what I would consider the three pillars, or help them provide the three pillars of economic uh, progress. And it's security, and that's both national and defense security, but also security from a standpoint of lack of corruption and, and the rule of law. And then everything we can do uh, try and provide the example of entrepreneurial spirit so you have a, a lower percentage of, of young people in those nations that actually want to get involved in companies like, like Uber, you know, the, the, the real things that drive an economy. 
and then capital. Uh, the, the only way you're going to have capital flowing to the West is if, for example, American companies realize that there isn't corruption, we can follow the law, you can actually make those investments and, and realize that there's going to be some certainty there. So, again, this, this hearing is really all about, first of all, understanding what, what the issue is, what the problems are, what we need to do in terms of re-engagement, but also, also hopefully signal to Southeast Europe, you've got support, uh, we want to re-engage, and we, th we know it's important that we do re-engage. So with that, uh, I want to thank the witnesses, and we'll call our, our final witness our next panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, I know. I just got to make the I, I know. I know. I just got to make the case. Well, it looks like our next panel of one is, uh, is seated and all, all supplied up. So I want to welcome uh, Mr. Hoyt Yi. Mr. Yi is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs at the Department of State. Mr. Yi is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and has served as the Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Croatia, Council General in, and you can say the name of the city, Greece, and Principal Office, Officer in Montenegro, amongst other assignments. Uh, Mr. Yi, welcome. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, let me begin by just uh, expressing on behalf of my colleagues at the State Department uh, our um, sympathies, our best wishes to your colleagues uh, who were injured in the incident in Alexandria this morning. Our hearts go out to the members and also the law enforcement officials who were injured, and we wish our speedy recovery. Thank you very much for inviting me to appear before you today to discuss the challenges we see in the Western Balkans and our strategy for mitigating them. The region is facing its most serious challenges since the 1990s, which, left unchecked, could have grave consequences for the Western Balkans, wider Europe, and the United States. The Western Balkans face a number of threats. Fragile institutions, shortcomings in the rule of law, and unfree media have facilitated endemic corruption. This corruption endangers these young democracies and opens pathways for destabilizing actors, including 
violent extremists, organized criminal groups, and countries seeking to exert malign influence. We believe much more needs to be done to mitigate these dangerous vulnerabilities. Internal problems such as systemic corruption have opened the door to external threats such as Russia, which is intent on thwarting efforts by countries in the region to pursue a Euro-Atlantic path. Moscow exploits the region's heavy dependence on Russian gas and hydrocarbons, endemic corruption, feeble rule of law, a weak media sector, and unresolved political or territorial disputes to pressure governments and political parties and discourage Western-oriented reform. Compounding the external threat posed by Russia is a potential growth of violent extremism. According to open source reporting, 750 to perhaps as many 950 foreign fighters have traveled from the region to Syria and Iraq since 2012, while the number of departing foreign terrorist fighters has significantly declined it is clear that the Balkans remain a focus for ISIS recruitment efforts. These continued challenges are formidable, but we have been active in helping the countries of the region confront them. We are taking steps to shore up rule of law and stamp out corruption by assisting our partners to accelerate their needed reforms. With our assistance, Albania is implementing wide-ranging judicial reforms, Montenegro is cracking down on corruption, and Serbia is closing loopholes that allow for public graft. Across the Balkans, we are working to spur economic growth with programs aimed at integrating and harmonizing regional markets and increasing access to capital. We are also urging political leaders and criminal justice institutions to show the will and courage to aggressively investigate, prosecute, and punish corrupt actors in the organized crime groups they protect. At the same time, we have developed a full-spectrum approach to push back against Russian malign influence. To combat Russia's aggressive propaganda machine, we are amplifying our messages, correcting false narratives, and supporting independent media and investigative journalists. To make the region more independent, we are promoting projects such as the Transatlantic, sorry, Trans-Adriatic Pipeline, the Kirk Island Liquid Natural Gas Terminal, and the Bulgaria-Serbia Interconnector. Through these projects, we will help enable Balkan countries to import gas from multiple sources limiting an important source of Russian influence. Additionally, we are using our military assistance programs to build up the human capital of militaries of the region and offering options that allow these countries to move away from overdependence on Russian military equipment. We're also working to counter the spread of violent extremism and end ISIS's influence in the Western Balkans. As Secretary Tillerson has said, ISIS is not more powerful than we are when we stand together. Our partners recognize this, which is why every country in the region has joined the Defeat ISIS coalition, criminalized foreign terrorist fighting, and established dedicated counterterrorism counter units. Due to these efforts, and in part because of our capacity of building assistance, the flow of foreign terrorist fighters to Syria and Iraq has significantly decreased over the past two years. As we continue to strengthen our law enforcement relationships, our partners are also arresting foreign terrorist fighters and breaking up ISIS plots in the region. In conclusion... Creating stability and progress in the Western Balkans is not an impossible task. With our and Europe's active engagement over the past month, we have seen some real successes. As Montenegro has joined NATO, with the help of the Senate, of course, Macedonian leaders have come together to form a new government. The Albanian opposition agreed to end its boycott and participate in elections on June 25th. And Serbia is on track to open two new EU accession chapters this month. However, we also know there is much work to be done. 
a stable, prosperous Western Balkans that is integrated into Europe and serves as a strong partner on counterterrorism will help make America more safe, provide opportunities for U.S. businesses, and ensure peace in the region. To accomplish this goal, the countries of the Western Balkans need to commit themselves to the deep reforms needed to join Euro-Atlantic institutions and resist foreign malign influence, terrorism, and other external threats. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Secretary Yi. Um, when I was in the region, all the meetings I've been taking here in Washington, D.C., the, the theme is very consistent. Uh, we really are at a, at a moment in time here. Uh, because of the, the lack of engagement or the reduced engagement, uh, they really are concerned, these countries are concerned, that you could be at a tipping point here. I know you're just in the region. Are, are you hearing the exact same thing? Is this uh, something the State Department recognizes? Is this something the Secretary, the President recognizes that uh, we have a moment in time? We, we, we cannot allow Southeast Europe, the Balkans, to slip into the wrong category. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for that question. Yes, we, we do hear the same thing, and I hear the same. Um, when I was in the region recently, uh, the countries of the Western Balkans are very eager for more engagement from, from America, more from the European Union. They believe very strongly in the need uh, uh, for additional help, both in terms of assistance, but also political support uh, for what they're trying to achieve, which is reform in the majority of the countries, uh, and also progress towards reaching integration with the uh, European Union and NATO. Um, as the Secretary mentioned yesterday in his, um, his testimony, um, he is aware of a need for engagement in the Baltics and in the Balkans, particularly with relation to uh, Russian malign influence. Um, but in general, the State Department is committed, remains committed to helping the Balkans move forward on the goals that it has set forward and we are supporting. Traveling into the region, obviously I was concerned about the foreign fighters and, and influence of ISIS. I, I was actually comforted by... I don't want to minimize the problem, but it, it was not as, as great a concern to uh, those countries. They, they really think they have it pretty well under control. I mean, do you share that assessment? I believe that most of the countries of the Western Balkans uh, still need uh, significant assistance from the West, particularly the European Union and the United States. Um, one example is in the area of foreign terrorist fighters, where the region has been successful in reducing the number over the last couple of years. Uh, but what I tell uh, interlocutors in uh, the governments in Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo, for example, is that uh, it's no time to be complacent. The problem, uh, the origins, the sources of violent extremism and therefore of the possibility of foreign terrorist fighters still exist and need to be addressed. So I think while there is some uh, room for uh, not celebrating, but I think recognizing the, the progress made, uh, it's no time to be complacent. We need to continue to be uh, vigilant, but also active in uh, strengthening the institutions which will push back against violent extremism, against Russian malign influence, uh, against other actors who are acting against what the countries of the region of the Western Balkans are trying to achieve. I think probably the best way to counter violent extremism in any of its forms is through economic opportunity. Uh, when I was in Montenegro, I think, uh, I don't believe you were here when I said it, uh, a private sector survey showed that 50% of young Montenegrins want to work for the government. Uh, we had a witness, uh, Ms. Uh, Barovic, said that in, in her home country, Bosnia, the, the percentage is 70%. Uh, 
uh, that, that is, you know, to, to a guy from the private sector, an entrepreneur myself, that's shocking. Uh, it's, it's actually kind of depressing, and it does, to a certain extent, point to the allure of what Russia's propaganda is all about. They, they promise falsely some sense of security. Uh, can you speak to, I mean, what can we possibly do to help uh, really change that dynamic? Well, Mr. Chairman, I agree the the wish of the youth of the countries in the Western Balkans for working in the public sector, uh, for the government in particular, is not sustainable uh, economically. The governments simply can't have the kind of public administrations and state-run enterprises that would be able to sustain uh, that many young people. Uh, and it also, of course, retards uh, innovation and entrepreneurism, which is necessary to in, uh, improve the economies. I think the types of remedies or the types of uh, alternatives that need to be explored are in opening up the economies to um, the kinds of um, open markets and economic policies that we see in Central Europe and Western Europe, uh, where it's possible to start a business uh, without being politi politically connected or having to pay a bribe, uh, where young people can get jobs based on merit, not on affiliation with a particular party. Uh, and that is a prevalent, unfortunately, the prevalent uh, basis for getting employment in many of the countries of the Western Balkans. It's political connections or affiliation. So once the standards that the EU requires and NATO to a certain extent also requires uh, for open uh, democratic-based economies and systems of governance, uh, there can be greater opportunity. So I think we need to continue the kind of assistance we're providing to um, open up the markets, to bring Western standards, whether it's to judiciary, as you know as a business person, uh, it's absolutely essential for businesses to know they can have legal redress. In many countries of the Western Balkans, it's very difficult. So the level of foreign investment, while slowly increasing, um, is not increasing fast enough to create jobs for the young people who are now seeking jobs in the public sector. So if we can attract more foreign investment, that will address um, a large part of the problem. To what extent does the State Department sponsor things like trade missions, but also just mentoring opportunities? Well, you know, in Montenegro, for example, they, they produce cheese. And I've actually talked to some cheese producers, some, some retired executives, and say, hey, you want a really nice uh, couple months in a beautiful country mentoring young potential entrepreneurs and you know, basically conveying your, your knowledge of what it, is, what it takes to, to start a business. Is the State Department engaged in any of those types of activities at all? Um, yes, Mr. Chairman, the State Department and the uh, Commerce Department are both very interested in attracting potential um, American businesses to do either uh, direct investments or ventures with um, countries in the Western Balkans. Uh, however, I would say we always inject a note of caution when we speak to American businesses because in many cases the environment, the uh, conditions for foreign investment um, are not uh, up to the standards that we feel comfortable promoting. So quite frankly, in some of the countries, our emphasis now is not in attracting American companies, but in working with the governments to improve the conditions, whether it's rule of law, uh, independent judiciary, uh, law enforcement, um, just basic regulation or lack thereof that is necessary for companies to succeed. Um, in some countries, uh, there's a great deal of uh, uh, foreign investment. In Serbia recently, a large um, investment. Uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, there are some slow increases in interest from American companies. Uh, but these tend to be the somewhat more adventuresome or risk uh, non-averse uh, companies. We'd like to see the conditions improve so we can attract companies from Wisconsin and other states that may be able to do 
um, some some good some good business in, in places like the Balkans. I, I completely agree that the first step is you have to make a, a country an attractive place for uh, investing their risk capital. That to Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you, uh, Mr. Secretary. Um, there is a total disconnect between the case you're making and the array of challenges that need increased resources and the budget that has been submitted. Before you got here, I laid out the cuts that target the Balkans that would effectively shut down the State Department's non-consular operations. I don't imagine you support those cuts, and I think they're dead on arrival, so it's not necessarily worth spending time asking you about it. I just make the point. Let me ask you about the trend lines you're seeing in Russian interest in the region. I think I've met with a representative of every country in the region, and when they come to my office, they want to talk about one storyline, which is rapid U.S. disengagement from the region. Not you're doing a yeoman's work, but they are worried that we are sending a signal with these budget cuts with our lack of support for NATO, with our criticism of our EU allies, that we are not interested in the region any longer and a response by the Russians to jump in. In every single country, they have very concrete examples of places in which the Russians, just in the last six months, in the last eight months, are much more involved in uh, message development, in support for opposition groups than they were even last year, and they were involved at a pretty fever pitch last year. Are you seeing uh, increased Russian involvement in media, in political activities uh, in many of these countries? Have you seen a difference uh, this year compared to last year? What's the trend line? Thank you, Senator Murphy, for the question. Uh, The answer is yes. Uh, We do see um, increasing Russian interest and activity in the Western Balkans. Uh, The most uh, obvious example, I'm not sure if other uh, witnesses mentioned it, was in Montenegro. Uh, where October 16th, uh, the election day in Montenegro, was uh, uh, severely marred by the, uh, an attempt uh, which was foiled um, by uh, Russian uh, or Russian-supported uh, actors who tried to undermine the elections um, and probably undermine the government, if not actually overthrow the government or even assassinate the prime minister. Um, this is, I think, consistent with where we've seen Russia trying to interfere in elections uh, around the world, around Europe, um, including our own country. It's consistent with Russia's attempts to prevent countries of the Western Balkans from joining NATO, from integrating further with uh, Euro-Atlantic institutions. Um, we're, we're seeing uh, um, through rhetoric, through the misinformation, through um, the media supported by uh, Russia, uh, attempts to uh, spread uh, the kind of uh, uh, ideology or policies that are directed against NATO, directed against the West. Uh, and I think all the countries uh, that are striving to join EU and NATO are aware of this. It's not something that uh, anyone is, uh, is um, protected from or cloistered from. So we're working together with the countries of the Western Balkans to address the malign influence from Russia, um, this is a wide-spectrum approach from de- addressing the false narratives, of fa- uh, addressing the lies that are being spread by uh, Russian or pro-Russian media, um, addressing uh, the kinds of uh, attempts with the direct uh, attempts to influence governments through either bribery or other means. Um, we have to be present. 
as you said, Senator, we have to be, our diplomats, our ambassadors and their staffs need to be present um, with uh, our meetings with all the members of the government, but also the opposition. We need to be present in the media. Um, and we need to be providing advice, best practices, uh, which, we, which we are doing. So I think the trend uh, is, is concerning. Uh, I don't think we um, are necessarily losing because I think the, the Russians are also finding that countries are resilient. Montenegro was able to resist uh, with assistance from, from its partners, its, its, its friends and now allies. Um, other countries where Russia is attempting, Macedonia, for example, I think is a country that um, was um, facing a very difficult situation only a few weeks ago. Um, but the political parties uh, made the right decision, I think with a lot of help from us and from the European Union, reached an agreement to, to form a new government. Let me, um, let me turn to the question of uh, radicalization for a moment from a very widely read New York Times article uh, from last year. Uh, that article made the case that Saudi Arabia and other conservative Gulf states, quote, use an obscure labyrinth network of donations from charities, private individuals, and government ministries to fund extremist clerics and associations in the Balkans. Um, frequent visitors to the Balkans will tell you that just visually you can see a change in the type of Islam that is being practiced as more and more women, for instance, are walking around the streets uh, uh, wearing head covering. Um, can you, do you share the concern about funds flowing from the Gulf into the Balkans? Do you share a concern uh, about uh, the storyline that connects the Wahhabi uh, influence inside the region to the increased radicalization and flow of foreign fighters out of the region? Senator, yes, I, I am concerned um, by the presence of, uh, of uh, funding um, of uh, representatives from um, countries in the Gulf who uh, appear to be supporting either religious schools uh, or actors with extremist ideologies. I think it's important for us to be vigilant to see what actual effects this, this achieves. Um, as I mentioned, we have to monitor the, uh, the level of foreign fighters, um, which currently is on uh, the decline at a low level, um, but with a number of um, uh, actors, influences um, from countries that have a more radical or extremist ideology, um, we can expect that there'll be uh, some challenges. What's important, I think, on the positive side is that governments, whether it's Bosnia-Herzegovina or Kosovo or Albania, are aware of the risks um, that extremism uh, places on them, um, on their societies, and they're working with us, uh, with European partners as well, to try to mitigate uh, these influences. I would mention that in Bosnia-Herzegovina, where I was last week, um, many of the interlocutors I spoke to um, made the a distinction between a rise in a kind of middle-class tourism um, from Gulf states uh, that visit Bosnia-Herzegovina. It's a country they feel comfortable in. Um, they're investing in real estate. Uh, they come for vacation. They're not necessarily engaged in any kind of extremism. So there are, I think, some benign um, uh, trends as well uh, that we need to distinguish from uh, the extremists. And one last quick question on a specific uh, issue. Should we be concerned, uh, this is in Serbia, should we be concerned about the Russian-funded humanitarian base in uh, Nice, Serbia? Is this a humanitarian base or is this a military base that the Russians now have inside Serbia? Senator Murphy, yes, I am concerned 
by this um, so-called humanitarian center, um, not so much what it is now, but what um, it might become if it receives what Russia has been asking from Serbia, which is uh, some kind of special status, a protected diplomatic uh, status or other immunity. Um, we don't believe that Russia has good intentions from our standpoint um, in our context, which is trying to help the Balkans uh, move closer to its goal of uh, integration with Europe. Um, we believe Russia is trying to prevent that, that path, um, progress on that path. Uh, so the creation of some kind of center in niche, um, very close to the border with um, Kosovo, um, where we still have over 600 U.S. troops, there's a large over 4,000 uh, NATO-led uh, peacekeeping force, is, would not be um, a positive development, especially if individuals or the facility itself had special immunity. Um, we believe it's important, we've shared this with the government of Serbia, for Serbia to be um, in full control of its territory and facilities on its territory, uh, if it allows Russia to create um, some kind of special uh, center for <coughs> espionage or other uh, nefarious activities, um, it will lose control over um, uh, part of its uh, territory. I hope all of our friends in the region understand that it is in Russia's interests to see conflict in that region, to test alliances, to test NATO, to test America and Europe's commitment to that region. Uh, that ultimately is not in our interest, or not in our partner's interest there, but it unfortunately is in Russia's interest. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to you and Ranking Member Murphy for holding the hearing today. I'm sorry I was not able to get to the first panel because of a conflict, but um, I very much appreciate your being here, Mr. Yi, and your personal commitment to the Western Balkans and everything that you have done to address um, what's happening there. I think you were probably um, very humble about your role in the recent political stalemate in Macedonia. I understand that you personally helped to bring about a peaceful resolution. And, and I wonder if you could give us a sense of how the crisis there was ultimately resolved and whether there are lessons for future um, situations in Macedonia that we can apply both there and in other countries in the Western Balkans. Thank you for that question, Senator Shaheen, uh, and your kind words. Uh, I think there are some lessons that we can draw from the Macedonian experience, and it go. I think the lessons begin from the beginning of the political crisis in that country um, back in uh, uh, over two years ago, um, early 2015, when the revelations uh, through uh, leaked wiretaps came out of widespread um, apparent government uh, corruption. Um, I think one of the first lessons is that is one of the most um, uh, serious and prevalent problems in the Western Balkans is lack of strong rule of law and uh, systemic corruption. And that needs to be addressed uh, because it prevents so many other things from, from developing. Um, secondly, I think the, the lesson we can draw is how the crisis was, was resolved. Um, it was done in very close partnership between the European Union and the United States uh, in helping the parties um, reach an agreement on how to move forward, and this was the July 2015 Pergino Accords, which uh, the four major parties agreed as a way forward of how to get out of the crisis, how to um, hold accountable um, the persons uh, implicated in the wiretapping uh, scandal, uh, and also how to hold uh, elections to create a new government. It was by a cooperative approach with the international community, the stakeholders who had the most to, to lose or to gain, um, and the parties them, themselves, including the, the party that was in power uh, during the during this, the scandal's uh, beginning, um, I think the 
the transatlantic link, the cooperation between both sides of the Atlantic was, was critical, and that's an important lesson. I think that applies everywhere. Where the U.S. and Europe are together, we usually do pretty well at handling problems. And when we're not together, we have problems. Um, thirdly, I think um, the lesson I, I think we can draw from the Macedonian experience is that accountability is something that is lacking, unfortunately, um, and needs to be uh, more prominent in our approach and I think the approach of the, the Western Balkan governments. And that is to say that not enough times are people um, who are committing crimes, whether it's corruption or otherwise, um, or governments and leaders who are not meeting their commitments to the international community um, are not held responsible. And I think this is very important, and this um, addresses somewhat, I think, our approach, a new approach, what I believe our new approach should be in the Balkans, is in ensuring that if leaders are violating the law or they're not meeting their commitments, uh, whether it's the Dayton Accords or the Ohrid Agreement in Macedonia, that there would be consequences. And I think we made that clear, both the Europe, Europeans and we did, that we would not accept uh, a crisis lasting forever, um, that uh, if uh, leaders were going to obstruct the agreement, whether the conclusion of the agreement or the implementation, they would be held accountable. And that was very important in, in reaching, a, a, I think, what ended up being a, um, a good outcome. And lastly, I think, the, um, the lesson that we can draw from that experience is the importance of, of standards. Um, we, as you probably know, Senator, um, were faced with a difficult situation last year when the Macedonians wanted to have elections. They organized elections for April um, that, uh, of last year that did not, in the international community's view, meet the standards necessary to say they were credible. Um, and there are many voices saying, just let them have the elections anyway. It's important to have the elections. And the United States and Europe insisted that the conditions be sufficiently credible so that we could afterwards say they were credible elections. Um, the government backed down and uh, postponed the elections until June. And in June, again, the same problem. Uh, because of still a lack of transparency, problems with the voters' lists, other issues with the elections, conditions were not sufficient. And the international community held its ground and said the standards aren't there yet. So... One of the lessons I think we've drawn is, and eventually, of course, in December, we had elections that have produced now what is a, um, a government, which was formed, um, again, with the, the help of the European Union and the United States, uh, that it was worth waiting until the conditions were met. And as we help countries either resolve their political difficulties, get closer to NATO or the European Union, it's important that we continue to hold them accountable to standards. And it's important that they, um, they make the reforms necessary, um, they, they solve the problems that, that, that we all know exist uh, so that they will, in the end, be ready to, to integrate with the, the West. Well, and one of the places where we're trying to um, hold people accountable is in the Republic of Srpska, where the Treasury Department imposed sanctions on Dodik um, for defying Bosnian law and obstructing the Dayton Accords. Can you talk about, or do we know... Um, I know that his um, leadership in the Republic of Srpska has been an issue for a very long time um, in terms of trying sometimes to inflame ethnic tensions and talking about separating uh, Srpska from the rest of Bosnia-Herzegovina. But are there others encouraging him at this point to be even more um, strident in his efforts to do that? Thank you, Senator. I think one um, of the major encouragers of uh, the president of the Republic of Srpska is Russia. I think Russia 
um, along the lines I mentioned earlier about trying to prevent countries from integrating further with the West, uh, with NATO or the European Union, um, would like to see a uh, situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina in which the country can't move forward. Um, I don't know whether Russia would actually like to see Republic of Srpska um, secede from Bosnia-Herzegovina because that would probably be a, a violent, disruptive, highly destabilizing event. Um, but I think it is uh, in Russia's interest to see the country stagnate and to remain uh, uh, more or less where it is right now, which is not moving very quickly towards, uh, towards the European Union or, or NATO. Um, but the politicians have to take responsibility. Um, they are being encouraged by some outside factors, but I think leaders of the Republic of Srpska, of the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, do have it within their power, within their authority, within their capabilities, to make the reforms necessary to get to the next stage of European Union membership. And I think one of the sad facts um, in Bosnia-Herzegovina is that many of the leaders, not all of them, but many of the leaders do not actually want to join the European Union because that would mean, unfortunately for them, uh, an end to their uh, way of doing business, of uh, staying in power. So unfortunately, Bosnia-Herzegovina is a bit of a captured state in the hands of corrupt politicians who don't want to give up power. Uh, and what we'll need to do, I think, so the situation doesn't drag on forever, um, is to hold accountable the leadership, uh, to work even more closely with the European Union in applying standards uh, to ensure that the reforms are done, that we're providing sufficient assistance because that is essential, um, but that it's used in the right way. And one of the highlights, I would say, one of the positive uh, developments we've seen in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina is that the International Monetary Fund, uh, with our strong support, has insisted that the Bosnia-Herzegovina leadership make certain reforms before the country receives the next tranche of assistance. So for the last several months now, Bosnia has not received the tranche of IMF assistance because it's not been able to agree on the reforms. This is how I think we can get results. If we have conditionality, if we hold the leadership accountable. Um, are you going to do another round, Mr. Chairman? Can I continue to ask a few more questions? Um, what role has Serbia played with the Republic of Srpska in terms of what's currently happening there? Well, Prime Minister Vucic, uh, who was recently elected to be president, um, Prime Minister Vucic did uh, intervene and expressed both publicly and privately to uh, the President of the Republic of Srpska uh, that it was not in Serbia's interest. Serbia did not want to see um, a referendum, an illegal referendum, uh, that uh, Republic of Srpska uh, did hold uh, last September. Um, it was uh, a referendum that was illegal because it was against the, uh, a constitutional court ruling directly, um, blatantly, in uh, violation of the constitutional court. Um, but uh, the leadership of Republika Srpska went ahead anyway. So I think we had um, um, assistance, support from um, Prime Minister Vucic uh, to try to deter uh, this uh, act from occurring. And I believe it's uh, based on interest. It's certainly not in Serbia's interest to see a breakaway statelet um, and a weak Bosnia-Herzegovina as Serbia is trying to join the European Union to attract tourism, to attract foreign investment. Um, but that kind of um, effort to help with um, what's going on there is helpful, wouldn't you agree? I mean, to have um, Serbia, I remember being in Croatia as they were finishing their accession to the EU and they were talking about ways in which they were trying to help some of their neighbors as they were looking at the challenges. 
they were facing with accession efforts. And um, I got a very strong sense from others that I visited with at the time that that was very helpful to have countries in the region trying to support each other. Thank you, Senator. Absolutely. The countries of the region and uh, Serbia, um, especially, I would say, as the largest country in the region, uh, need to play a constructive role in trying to mend fences with neighbors, resolve bilateral differences, whether it's over war crimes or over with Kosovo, for example, resolving the status uh, or the normalization, as we call it, between the two countries. Uh, it's vital that Serbia be um, firmly on the path towards uh, European Union membership, um, closer integration with the West, um, looking forward, not backwards. Um, we understand it will always have ties, historical, cultural ties with Russia, but that should not preclude it from moving in the direction of where already, um, by nature of its trade, uh, all of its commerce, um, foreign direct investment coming from the Europe, uh, not from Russia, a difference of an order of magnitude more right. is with Europe. Clearly, Serbia's future is in, in Europe. It's in our interest for, for Serbia not only to integrate with Europe, but also to help um, resolve problems with neighbors. Uh, already with Montenegro now, uh, it's separated with Montenegro in 2006, um, with uh, uh, Montenegro becoming uh, independent. Uh, Croatia now is a member of the European Union in a position to help Serbia, we hope, uh, as you mentioned, get closer to meeting the standards necessary. And in particular, I want to emphasize how important it is for Serbia to continue its, uh, its work with Pristina with Kosovo to find a way to normalize relations so the two countries can both move forward on their accession paths to the European Union. Um, well, thank you very much. I certainly agree with that. And, and I agree with the views expressed by Senator Murphy that um, continued American leadership in the Western Balkans is very important and support for what the countries there are trying to do and that it is not beneficial in those efforts for us to be looking at a budget that would cut dramatically our support for those efforts. One of the pieces of legislation that I have proposed with Senator Wicker is establishing an enterprise fund in Bosnia to help leverage our funding to promote private investment. Do you think that this is an effort that is helpful as we look at how we can contribute to other economic activity in some of the countries in the region? Thank you, Senator, for asking that and also for supporting this initiative. Um, we believe that Bosnia-Herzegovina um, desperately needs uh, assistance in developing a stronger economy um, based on a private sector as opposed to the public sector. And any initiative, including the one that you mentioned, Senator, um, would be welcome. Uh, what's particularly important is, as I mentioned earlier, that Bosnia-Herzegovina understand that um, regardless of how much assistance we are able to provide, whether EU or U.S., right. if they don't have the conditions, if there is not a functioning judiciary, um, the judiciary is, is highly flawed now, um, if there is not uh, a bureaucratic uh, regulation that permits businesses to open or for businesses to function normally, um, if there is not support from the government uh, for businesses to, to function normally. Uh, if there are 13 or 12 ministries for every important function in the state, uh, it will be extremely difficult to attract enterprises. So we welcome this initiative, Senator, um, and at the same time we urge you um, to continue in your interactions with leaders from Bosnia-Herzegovina and other countries of the region to remind them that um, if, they, if they build the conditions, uh, our businesses will come. 
Well, thank you very much again for your commitment, for your testimony today. And Mr. Chair and um, Senator Murphy, thank you both for holding this hearing. I think it's um, very important, and it's important for us to continue to stay engaged in the region. I agree, Senator Shaheen. And again, I appreciate you being so supportive of us holding this hearing. Um, Secretary Yee, thank you for your testimony. Uh, thank you for acknowledging at the onset uh, the event that is beyond disturbing at the practice field today. Uh, I was remiss in not doing so. I d it opened up my, my hearing in Homeland Security earlier today, acknowledging it, uh, offering our prayers to uh, Congressman Scalise and, and the aide and staff members, as well as the, the two uh, members of the Capitol Police are part of his security detail. And it's probably not a bad way to close this thing out in an area of completely nonpartisan support. Uh, what, what law enforcement officials, what government officials do for us is so incredibly important. So we thank you for their service. We thank the Capitol Police and, and the, the heroism that truly saved lives today. So again, th thank you so much for that. Um, the hearing record will remain open 48 hours until Friday, June 16th at 6 p.m. for the submission of statements and questions for the record. This hearing is adjourned.